we come to the preaching of God's Word, uh, today closes our faith-focused sermon series. And this is something that we do uh, at the beginning of each calendar year. Our normal preaching practice is to preach through a book of the Bible. So take it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and study a book of the Bible in the morning and in the evening. And at the end of this month, beginning in February, uh, we will start some new series on morning and evening worship services. But as a congregation, we want to think about something um, together at the beginning of the year. It is a theme that the, the elders consider and pray about. Uh, the staff has input. And what is something that we want to emphasize as we start a new year and that it would carry over uh, and be cultivated among us? So that's why we call it a faith focus. We do it through preaching and also in our small group ministry, our growth groups have a series of different studies that growth groups can choose and study together along the theme. This year we are considering living in light of eternity. And the purpose of it is to have an eternal perspective for our days in which we live. And with that, there's the important concept of understanding that every person is a pilgrim. And that may be a somewhat antiquated word for some of us, but it's the idea that every person is on a journey. Now, that includes those who are Christians and those who are not Christians. Everyone, this life is not the final stop. There is something beyond. And so you're either on a journey to eternal judgment, or if you are in Christ, you are a pilgrim on a journey to the new heavens and the new earth. Or as John Bunyan in his classic Pilgrim's Progress said, the, the celestial city. You're a pilgrim on the way to the celestial city. So throughout the series, we've been considered the needs of a pilgrim. What is it that a pilgrim needs to be thinking about and emphasizing and understanding on their journey? This morning, I take us to the book of Ephesians, and it's a great letter in the New Testament to help us on our pilgrimage. Chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Ephesians uh, deals with what Christians should believe. And then chapters 4 through 6 give us how pilgrims heading to heaven should then live right here and right now. So this second half of the book, in which we are looking at three verses from today, is filled with exhortations to live in a manner worthy of our calling as Christians. One of the ways that the Apostle Paul communicates this is with the Hebrew figure of speech to walk. It's a figure of speech for conduct, and it is to encompass one's whole lifestyle. So it includes your actions and your attitude. Your walk in life is to be your worldview then informing the way that you live. And so the Christian's walk is to correspond to who they are in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, you once were outside of Christ and your life demonstrated it. But now... If you were in Christ, you were to walk accordingly. It's the simply stated, you are to be what you are. And so the Apostle Paul, beginning in chapter 4 and then through where we are today, uses walk in several different ways. He says we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in unity with brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to walk in holiness we are to walk in love. We are to walk in the light. And now we see here in our passage that we are to walk in wisdom. That those who belong to Jesus, who is wisdom incarnate, who is our head, we are then to display that wisdom in our life. But in our passage, it's in particular into how we approach our time. We are to walk in wisdom concerning our time here. So a short 
brief main idea for us this morning. Be wise with your time because you are in Christ. Before we read God's word, let us ask for his help in prayer this morning. Would you join me in prayer again? Heavenly Father, this is your word that we come to this morning as it is read and proclaimed by your spirit working among us, speak to us. And because it is your word, it tells us of your son. And so I trust and I believe that no matter what someone has brought into this worship service, whether it's recent loss of a loved one, whether it is concern about their job, whether it's an aching loneliness, whatever each of us have brought here, Jesus is more than enough to meet our needs. And so we look to him and we ask that through word and spirit, we would feed on Christ this morning to receive from him all that we need to live for his glory and to grow in your grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. We're considering a pilgrim's time this morning. Thomas Edison once said, Time is not a commodity that can be stored for future use. It must be invested hour by hour or else it is gone forever. There's a lot of truth to that statement. There's a lot of sting to that statement as well. We'll consider how much that applies to the Christian we want to be good stewards of our time, and we want to be good stewards of our time in light of eternity. But I don't want us to think so much about godly principles of time management in order that we could be more organized and productive, though that would be a consequence of some of the things we will consider this morning. And I do believe that the Bible is more than sufficient enough to help us, especially some of us who aren't that organized or good with our time. The scripture will help us there. But that's not the main focus I want us to think about this morning. I want us to think kind of big picture with the big calendar in view. If you were to take your calendar and say, does my calendar, the big picture, the way that I view each year, month, week, day, hour, and second, does it align with the priorities of heaven? Is my calendar shaped by someone who is a possessor of eternal life, who's not hoping in the things of this life, but hoping in a life to come? Or does my calendar reveal that my priorities are of this world. I think our passage today is very helpful towards that end. So I want us to see three things from these three verses. I want us to think some about a pilgrim's view of time. And then I want us to consider how a pilgrim can make the best use of their time. And then we'll close with something of an exercise and consider how we might shape our calendars in view of eternity. A pilgrim's view of time. How should you as a Christian think about time in history? 
Well, to do so, we need to understand the days that we live in. So we don't begin in verse 15. We begin in the second half of verse 16 this morning. The last phrase, because the days are evil. Because the days of evil, this phrase is surrounded by exhortation, encouragement, and instruction for the believer. But it is as if all of these exhortations are bound together with this concept that Paul wants us to see. The days are evil. He wants us to have a theological understanding of our times. He wants us to have a basis for these exhortations in understanding the days in which we live. Our stewardship of time is to be guided by a theology of what is happening in redemptive history right now. And so, we are not to read the days are evil as Paul saying a particular time for the church at Ephesus, they're going through a difficult season. This is to be a blanket statement in which he is referring to the time between Christ's ascension and his return. The days are evil. Now, we don't often think about days like that. We think of, in hindsight, today was a good day. Today was a bad day. Today was a meh day. But the Apostle Paul would say, every day is an evil day. Now, it isn't just curmudgeon pessimism of the Apostle Paul here. It is realism. It's the realism of what is it that we are facing? We are in what theologians understand. It's a, it's a very important Christian concept, the already and the not yet. That Christ has secured heaven for his bride. And that Christ is alive, head of his church, reigning over the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is present in this world through the church. But yet, the enemies of this kingdom are still present. The conquered foe is still battling against the conqueror and his people. And that is the time we are living in. Christ has already ushered in the new creation through his resurrection. And the new creation has entered into the old creation through the new birth. When someone is born again, they are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's Son, here and now, right now. And yet the kingdom of darkness still remains. That's why it is the evil days. And we see this in a couple places in the letter to the Ephesians. We had three short verses to read in the beginning, but we'll be looking at several different passages that will inform our understanding of Pilgrim's time this morning. So in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 through 13, here we see that the apostle wants the believers to recognize the conflict that you are in every day. Here's another place where he speaks of the days being evil. Ephesians 6, 12-13, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. We're in spiritual conflict, spiritual warfare, and it is unrelenting that the enemy of your soul is still seeking to take you out of the hands of the Savior, though he cannot. He is still a raging foe, and he doesn't take a bye week. He doesn't take a day off. Right now, uh, one of the great privileges of my life is coaching elementary age basketball. Now, some of you think that sounds like a terrible idea. They're still better at dribbling from their mouth than they are with their hands at that age. Well, they're a little bit older than that. One of the things that 
as a coach, I'm trying to teach the kids, and this is, it's a challenge because you want them to play with Christian character, but you want them to be, dare I say, merciless on the court. That they are trying to defeat their foe and they're going to expend all their energy in doing so. But as soon as that final buzzer happens, the game's over. No more foes. Back to being friends. And so what do we do before we gather the kids to pray with them at the end of the game and to encourage them and to help them improve and using their athletic skills for the glory of God? Before we do that, we line up the two teams and we make them shake hands and say, good game they are to resume their friendships off the court, just my team, not on the court. Our enemy, Satan, that's not the type of battle we find ourselves in. It's a constant conflict. He's seeking to distract. He's seeking to deceive. He is seeking to, to tempt. If you can't finally have your soul, he's going to seek for you to be as little of an impact for the kingdom. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And we should see this as a constant wrestling in these evil days. Another place in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, the apostle describes our pre-Christ condition. He says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Those outside of Christ are following the course of this world, living in rebellion to God's truth and his law. And this is what we are surrounded with in our days, and this is what we too were once a part of, but have been rescued out of. Quite simply, we need to recognize that the days are not neutral. The default is anti God anti his son in his Christ. And as believers, we have to embrace our approach to the days with non-neutrality, seeing the challenge before us. But we're not left in despair. The New Testament points us to that this period, these evil days, this age is not the final age. And that the Lord is allowing these evil days to take place for his purposes. It's the Apostle Peter that explains this to us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter's encouraging the believers, saying, how many more evil days will we have? And he says, look, God is patient. His timing isn't quite our timing. He's doing something in this time. That among those who are still following the course of this world, that are still under the power of the prince of this world, that are still anti-God's kingdom, among those, he's plucking out rebels and putting them into his kingdom. And so we are patient in these evil days knowing that our heavenly father is still gathering a bride for his son from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then he commissions us as his people to take part in that work. And when everyone who is named in the Lamb's Book of Life has been brought into the sheepfold, 
Then the good shepherd will pierce the sky and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and he will vanquish all evil finally and forever. It's how pilgrims, we need to view the days in which we live, longing for that day, placing our hope in the age to come. So how do pilgrims make the best use of the time? Here are the exhortations here in these three verses. And we'll look at them under three headings. The pilgrims are to walk in wisdom, redeem the time, and discern the Lord's will. A theological understanding of the times that you live in should shape your priorities and stewarding your time. So how do you go about doing that? Well, the first exhortation is to wisdom, to walk in it. Now here clearly the Apostle Paul is commending the wisdom tradition of the Old Testament. That God has spoken and has given instructions in how to live life with wisdom. And living with wisdom is more than just having knowledge, is able to apply the knowledge that you have. So we see in the Old Testament that wisdom is the skill of living, the ability to take truth and then put it into practice or to apply it to the situations in which you're facing. There's a difference between just having knowledge and wisdom. Having knowledge, you can explain the difference between latitude and longitude, but having wisdom is being dropped off in the middle of a forest with only a compass and being able to navigate your way out. And so God gave his people Five books of the Old Testament devoted to the wisdom that we would need living the life of faith. The wisdom literature of the Old Testament is the book of Job, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Song of Solomon, the book of Proverbs. O Palmer, o. Palmer Robertson points out that the book of Job gives us wisdom on how to ask better questions in the midst of suffering. How to puzzle. The book of Ecclesiastes gives us wisdom on how to cope with the frustrations of this temporal life. The book of Lamentations helps us know how to weep. The Song of Solomon gives us wisdom and romance and how to love. In Proverbs, how to walk in wisdom. Wisdom is having the right attitude towards God and His creation. Being able to understand what He has revealed and then to apply it as you walk through His creation. Wisdom begins with the right attitude towards God. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And God being the source of all true wisdom, any attainment of wisdom is from Him. James 3.17 says that wisdom comes from above. And on the pages of the New Testament, we see that wisdom comes and takes on flesh in the person of Jesus. That wisdom is seen in the life of Christ. Luke chapter 2, verse 52. When Jesus was still a boy, Luke tells us this, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, what might be lost on you is that Luke is actually doing a callback to the book of Proverbs. He's actually citing Proverbs 3, verse 4, where it says, So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So when Luke gives us a summary statement of Jesus' 
adolescence and pre-adolescence and then his teenage years and his young adult years, his mid to late 20s. What's Luke's summary statement? Well, he goes to the book of Proverbs and says, oh, he's the one who found favor with God and man. He grew in wisdom. And what Luke is telling is that the book of Proverbs is more than just offering you practical wisdom on finances and relationships with friends and brothers and relationships within business and your neighbors. The book of Proverbs is offering more than just an understanding of justice and equity, but actually the book of Proverbs is painting a picture of Christ walking on earth, always walking according to the perfect revealed will of God, the wisdom of God in flesh, day to day, moment by moment, which is good news for us because Christ is our head and we have many days journeying through evil days trying to follow Christ. It's not just one step, it's millions of steps. And there's so many situations that we find ourselves in need of God's wisdom and we look to Christ, and there we see and we receive the wisdom of God. That's a good prayer for our kids, for the kids we saw baptized this morning, for the kids in your world, whether they be nieces, nephews, for the kids in the pew next to you. How do I pray for our children? We pray for their salvation, and we pray for their wisdom, that they would grow in wisdom and with favor with God and man. Of course, we want, we want to pray that one day God would send them a believing spouse. We want to pray that God would give them a, a good, God-honoring career. We want to pray all these wonderful things for them, but the most important thing is that wisdom. They'll need wisdom for being a God-honoring student. They'll need wisdom for being a God-honoring employee. They need wisdom to be a Christ-like husband or a godly wife. Would you pray that for the next generation as you pray it for yourself? And in doing so, point them to Jesus, who is wisdom incarnate, who faced every difficulty of this life and each time responded with the perfect wisdom of his heavenly father. So how do we make the best use of time? We walk in wisdom, but then we also, the wise thing to do is to seek to redeem the time that is before us. Look back at verse 16, the first phrase, making the best use of the time, redeem the time. Older translations said redeem the time. This translation here is very helpful. It is explaining the meaning of what it means to redeem the time. Make the best use of the time. But the older translations use the word redeem because it's there in the Greek. There's only two occasions in the New Testament in which redeem does not refer to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It's here and it's in Colossians. And he's saying, buy up the time. Recover the time. Rescue the time. But it's the moment that the Apostle Paul has in mind. There are two different words for time in the Greek. One would be for a long sequence, chronos. Here, it's keros. It is the moment that is to be redeemed, to be recognized. It's the point of just saying, look at what is before you, and in this moment, what honors the Savior? What advances his kingdom? How can I serve? It's a Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 mindset pervading every waking minute of your day. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That the Lord knew who you would sit next to this morning, who you would run into at lunch, who you might run into at the gas station tomorrow. 
And that for his people, as ambassadors for Christ, he has prepared good works, kingdom works for us. Now, he's prepared good works in the sense of our obedience to his revealed will in the scriptures and in opportunities to serve and to act in ways that will advance his kingdom. It's the embrace of the Galatians 6.10 mindset where Paul there says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. It is learning from Paul's own example that when life gave him lemons, he figured out a way to recognize that God was asking him to make lemonade with those lemons. His imprisonment, while he is seeking to plant churches across the ancient world, he finds himself sitting in a prison cell. And so what does he do? He makes the most of the moment, of the opportunity. And so he picks up a pen and starts writing. And that's where we get a big chunk of our New Testament. Letters from Paul in prison to the churches. But it wasn't just his epistle writing that he took advantage of the moment before him. We see in Philippians chapter 1 that he is in a Roman prison and he takes opportunity, Philippians 1, 12 to 14, to share with the imperial guard why he is in prison. He's in prison for Christ. He is sharing the gospel with Caesar's guards. It wasn't on his ministry agenda. It wasn't on his strategic plan for ministry. But he realizes this is what the Lord is asking me to do right now. And he takes advantage of the moment. There's big ways and little ways that we can prepare for the moments. Part of it is regular attending to the ordinary means of grace. That you put yourself before the reading and preaching of God's Word, and then you make a regular practice of studying God's Word. And that you begin to memorize passages of Scripture for yourself, but then for others. Not knowing who you may encounter and what they may need to hear from God's Word. Because I don't have what's sufficient for your needs. I don't have the words that your heart needs, but God's word is powerful to that end. And so I'm to, to put myself before God's word, to study it, to dwell in it, to meditate on it, to memorize it, so that when the moment arrives by the power of the Holy Spirit, there it is on the tip of the tongue, ready to minister to the person in need. And there's other practical ways to be intentional. It's, it's stocking your pantry with non-perishables so that you're ready to welcome someone in if they need a visit or ready to bring something to someone in need. It's having maybe a couple frozen pizzas in the freezer so that if you learn that someone is having a, a, a terrible day, that you can invite their family over and say, hey, look, it's tombstone, but come, come eat. Let's be together tonight. Let's pray with one another. Let us feed you. It's saying, hey, brother, you're going through a difficult time. I got some hot cocoa in the pantry. Come on by. Let's sit by the fireplace. Let's talk about what's going on. Let me minister to you. I saw this exampled in, and I shared this uh, with you this past summer, in my grandmother's life. She went to be with the Lord this past July. One of the things that she would do, she was a believer. She didn't have much, but what she would do is that she would always try to have a $20 bill in her purse. And she called it her $20 ministry so that if she came across someone who needed something, whether it was someone sitting next to her in a pew or someone in front of her in the grocery store line who didn't have enough to pay for their groceries, she could bless them and minister to them. 
Mama was trying to stay ready to make the most of the opportunity because she loved her Savior and she knew that there was more to this life in seeking to take the time that she had and the resources she had and redeem the time. And then we're also told to re- not just to walk in wisdom, to redeem the time, but to discern the will of the Lord. There in verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, fool here is not just someone who acts silly. Now, actually, there could be a fool who's, by all outward appearances, quite dignified. Someone could be a fool and could be very respected by peers and possibly even by those sitting next to them in church. No, the fool is someone who lives in the moment but with no consideration about the effects of their words and their actions. They've embraced the moment but not to make the most of it, not to redeem it. A fool does not live in light of eternity. But ultimately, in Scripture, who is the fool? The fool is the one who rejects God's revelation. The fool is the one who rejects God's revelation, both his general and his special revelation. It is the fool who looks at the created world around us and says, there's no creator. It is the fool who ignores that they've been given a conscience that steers them, either condemning or commending them. It is the fool more so who hears God's special revelation, His Word, what is in the Bible, and maybe entertains it, but doesn't apply it. The fool is the one who hears the teaching of Jesus, but instead of building his house on the rock, he builds it on the sand, and it is washed away in the flood. And so the apostle says, understand the will of God. Now, that should be a puzzling statement for you. That should be something to wrestle with. Earlier in Ephesians 5, it says, discern the will of God. Understand the will of God. Is he saying, just, I'm supposed to know who I'm supposed to marry? I'm supposed to know what career I'm supposed to choose? I'm supposed to know how to invest these finances I've entrusted to. I'm supposed to know all these particular answers to real decisions that I'm facing. That's not first and primary what the apostle is pointing out here. That's the equivalent of going up to a first grader and say, here's an algebra test. And they say, I never took algebra. And you say, understand algebra. And they said, what? No, understand algebra. That's not what the apostle Paul is telling us here. It's not the particular will of God that unfolds in the course of providence that he's referencing. It's, it's the general will of God. It's what God has told us in his word. He's saying, think on that, know it, begin to put it into practice in your life. And then, as a consequence, when you're practicing what God has generally revealed applies to all people, then the particulars, they they'll begin to work out on their own. Do what you know the Lord commands you to do. It is his will for your sanctification. It is his will that we serve one another in the body of Christ. It is his will that we witness to the gospel, that we share the good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to sinners. That is part of his will. And as we put those things into practice, We recognize further and further that the Bible is enough for this life. It is sufficient. It is clear. Within the pages of this book, there's all that we need for life and godliness. There's all that we need to live in these evil days 
So when he's saying, understand the will of God, it's saying, recognize what you've been taught, recognize what you've studied. It's so true that in the moment of temptation, in the moment of temptation, we know the will of God. We know what he has said. And it's a matter of being foolish or wise. The wise person understands, here's the temptation before me. This is what God has said. I'm going to go with what God has said. And doing that over and over and becomes the pattern of your life. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It has everything you need for the next step. And then it will guide you on the journey home to heaven. So considering these exhortations, what might we do with our calendars? What does a a pilgrim calendar look like? How do we get there? Here's some evaluation questions for us. Some of this may or may not be fun, but we need to ask ourselves. Do you need to reevaluate your calendar according to wisdom? How many things on your calendar would get axed off your calendar immediately if you just asked yourself the simple question, is this the wise thing to do right now? Would wisdom dictate that I give time to this? It may be that you look at your calendar and you need to be more intentional about putting ministry on your calendar. Here, we are to be ready to be ministering to others at any moment, but at the same time, we know God has called us to serve. And so it's a matter of being intentional, looking at your calendar. Where are the intentional moments, hours, days, evenings, mornings that are devoted to serving, that are set apart for evangelism and outreach? That one's very challenging. Like quite often, we, we like the idea maybe of relational evangelism as we build relationships with people that we will eventually get to talking about the gospel. And that is a normal, ordinary way of evangelism. And still we are to be intentional and to carve out time to give devoted to the work of evangelism as the people of God. Is there hospitality on the calendar? And hospitality beyond deepening the fellowship we have with dear friends, but hospitality, seeking out the lonely and the grieving. Maybe on your calendar, you need to reclaim Sundays. And given that we live in evil days, that is one of the most important things that you can do as a Christian is make sure that Sunday has its right place on your calendar. Why? This is the day that we gather together first and foremost and remind each other it was on this morn that Jesus rose from the dead. It was the first day of the week. We are resurrection people. We are not of the course of this world anymore. We are those who've been brought from death into life. And after we have battled from Monday to Saturday in a spiritual conflict, we come together on Sundays and we are renewed in resurrection life as we sit under the ordinary means of grace, as we sing praises to our exalted Savior. It's from that perspective that, that we see the joy, the privilege, and the blessing of the fourth commandment to set apart Sundays for rest and worship, that this is the day to recharge as pilgrims. And so treat it different. Make it special. One way that helps is that I would invite you to come back to evening worship. When you put that as the bookends for your days, it changes the way that you approach the day. And you see the Lord ministering to you. 
Reclaim your Sundays if, you, if that's you. Ask yourself the question as you consider your calendar. Do you need to make more time to sit at the feet of Jesus? There's a story in the Gospels of two sisters, Mary and Martha. Many of you remember the story. They're, the sisters are hosting Jesus and the disciples and others. And Martha is serving, serving, serving. Running around. And Jesus literally is sitting at the feet of the incarnate Lord. And Martha goes to Jesus and says, what are you going to tell my sister? What is she doing? She should be helping, right? She should recognize what's happening here. And Jesus says, no, actually, she chose the better place. We could, it doesn't matter if the food's warm. It doesn't matter if everyone's glass of iced tea is refilled immediately. It doesn't matter all these other concerns. Let the spilled milk on the counter go for a little while. Martha, And would you come and just sit at my feet like Mary? Has busyness in life squeezed out time set apart for you and Jesus? I started with a quote from Thomas Edison. Time is not a commodity that can be stored for future use. It must be invested hour by hour or else it is gone forever. Is that completely true? It's not for the Christian. Many of you, right now, there's a lot of wrestling going on in your head with evaluating your calendar, your days, and it may begin to feel burdensome. And for many people, regret after regret begins to pop up in your mind. Regret for time you spent with a grandparent and your lack of appreciation. Regret for what you said over a meal with friends. Regret over time wasted on sin and rebellion against God. But our wasted time ultimately is not wasted. For the believer, what seems to be lost and gone forever, that too can be redeemed by the Savior and used for His glory and His purposes. The prophet Joel went to God's people who were under the judgment of God for their sin. God had sent locusts to tear through their crops and to create a famine because his people were rebellious. Because they had wasted years not serving him. And then the prophet Joel points out, this is what is happening in space-timing history. God is judging you. And then he goes further to say, but that's not all. And the word of the Lord comes to God's people through the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2, verse 25. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. The God that we serve is the God who can restore wasted years, even if they were wasted by our own sin. This is the God who reigns over time, and He's the God who reigns over all our days. We feel the weightiness of that calendar and wanting to use it and steward it for the glory of God. And the Savior comes in and says, My mercies are new every morning. Great is my faithfulness to you. The Savior comes to you, dear believer, and says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. 
not regret and not shame for your past. And you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Oh, what lies behind our desire to redeem the time that we have is that we have been redeemed by the Lord of history. And so forgetting what is behind, we press on what is ahead. And we entrust to him this moment and the next. Would you entrust your days to the one who loves you and gave his life for you? Let us pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Lord, we pray with Moses in Psalm 90. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We do not take tomorrow for granted. Help us to, in the moment, live in the confidence of the hope of the resurrection and eternity. And may that free us from our past. And as we count every day as a precious gift, may we make the most of the opportunity before us to have fellowship with you, to have fellowship with one another, and to seek the salvation of the lost. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.